Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, whoever else is listening, welcome back to part three of Hopeless to Dopeless with my good friend Marshall Roberts. And I wanted to say to you, Marshall, first, how I am really grateful for your willingness to share this story. And I'm really impressed with just the way you, you, the ability you have to articulate and share this in such a powerful way. So thank you, sir, for joining me once again. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, we left off and you had, you had talked about your prison life and then uh, how wonderful that was. Mm. And then I was asking you about some of the detox and how you got over the addiction part. And then, uh, mm. then we left everyone hanging. Yeah, the cliffhanger. The cliffhanger on part two. So <laughs> Keep getting yelled at for that. <laughs> people are chomping at the bit for uh, part three. So take yeah. it away. It's all yours. Well, we finished up talking about quarantine and how horrible that is. And uh, I was just kind of listening to it, getting back into the loop of things. It's been a couple of weeks. And I remember thinking, ah, I really want to talk about all the horrible things that happened in quarantine. I think it's important that people know how horrible jail is and how, how you know, how the lessons that come, you know, come really hard fought. And maybe if I can help people realize how bad it is, who knows, maybe it'll help someone. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's useful. I know for me, when I was using heroin, the thought of going to prison and the thought of going to jail was minor. It wasn't a, it wasn't a serious consideration because you think, you think it'll never happen to you. You just think that you're not going to end up going to jail or that, you know, there's all these chances and, and level four treatment centers and inpatient and maybe you can just get this thing figured out before it ends up getting that bad. It doesn't really factor in. It doesn't become a reality until, well, you're actually in prison or you're actually in jail. Is that because the, the effect of the drug just kind of clouds your thinking? Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure that's a huge part of it. Um, I can't honestly tell you that I have perfect recall on, on the thinking during those times, but I do remember thinking several times, many, many times this could end up getting me landed in jail. This could end up taking me to prison. (laughs) And for me, it didn't really set in the gravity of the situation until I committed my first burglary when I ended up going into a friend's house and taking, taking things from him. Uh, and he called, he called my fiance and and I was laying in the bed next to her. And I just knew, I knew that she knew, he knew, everybody knew. And I'm just laying there thinking, well, I did too much. I messed up. Now I'm going to go to jail or prison. (laughs) I, I ran at that point. I talked to my, at the time, fiance cure me into going into the, going into the movie room and I was going to go pick out a movie and I just ran. 
I just grabbed my keys and I went out and I hopped in the car and I ran. And, uh, you know, and of course she was calling my phone. Where are you? You know, what's going on? Um, then the police started, started to hit up her phone. They started to hit up my phone. Uh, you know, they're quick. They, they, they know what they're doing. And it just, it started to set in and I started to really feel the, uh, feel the teeth of my decisions and the consequences. And I, I, I became very, very scared. I didn't want to go to prison. I didn't want to figure out if don't drop the soap is a real thing. I don't want to, I don't want to go through any of that. So what did I do? I, I, I escaped how I usually escape. I went and I, I found more heroin. I stole from people to get more heroin and then I got the heroin and I used it and everything was fine. And then that ran out. So I got more. And we've been through this and this is, this is the same story over and over and over again. And that's an addict's life. That's, that's what you do. Every day you wake up and it's the same, it's the same story. You wake up. How am I going to get money? I don't have any. So obviously I have to steal some because I have to get the drugs. It, it's unreal. None of it's real in the moment. It's just, it's, you're not living, you're not dead. You're just outside of yourself, watching yourself destroy yourself. After after being in prison for all that time, I finally found out some of the most important things that, that I have been trying to understand my entire life. I found out that I'm, that I'm talented and I knew I was talented growing up, but you know, when you're a kid, you just don't appreciate those things. You don't care. All you want to do, all I wanted to do was hang out with my friends and play, play the PlayStation and, and, and night games. Yeah, I could play the piano. I could play 10 different instruments. I had nigh perfect pitch and was a dancer and, you know, all of these things, you just, they don't register as a teenager. And then I got into heroin and then of course it's not going to register then. So where does my value develop? Where did I figure out what I am worth? And I was fortunate. I was fortunate because even though it sucked and even though it was really difficult, I got to take, you know, those, those years of my life in prison. I got to take that time and do nothing but figure out who I am and what I'm here to do. I got, I got to work on me. You know, you, you grow up and, and you just, you get into life, you move out, maybe you go to college, maybe you get a job, maybe, maybe you buy a car and you just keep doing these things, but you never get to take time out of that life to just work on yourself all day, every day. And I, I, I was given that gift and it took me a long time to realize what that was. So that's, the, that's one of the silver linings to the prison time. Was just, yeah, you time quality, you time. <laughs> yeah, 
which is true. You're right. So many, we're so busy existing that we don't get that. Not that taking your route to get that time is a wise choice, but <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not, not a, not a, a good, lot of, a lot of what's in prison is not in the brochure. Yeah, no, not a good career path. No, it's not, it's not a good cruise. Um, but yeah, it took, it took me a long time. It took me years, the first few years that I was in prison to figure out how fortunate I was that A, I was removed forcibly from a situation that I myself had no power or ability to find my way out of. I was helpless. I was completely and utterly helpless. I lost all self-control. I lost all identity. I lost everything. And the drive to get the drug was stronger than my drive to survive. It was stronger than my drive to eat. My primal urges, it outranked all of them. I had no control. I had no ability to get away from that. So yeah, I was forcibly removed from that situation. And I was put in a place where I was, I was fed. Albeit it was nothing to brag about, but I was fed. I had a bed to sleep in that wasn't freezing cold. It wasn't too hot. Well, it, sometimes it was too hot, but I had a place to sleep. I had shelter over my head and I had food and I had clean running water and I could clean myself and I could get my laundry clean and I could live. I could exist like that without the drugs. And restore a little bit of your dignity Yeah. at the same time. Yeah. As ironic as that seems. And restore some dignity because, you know, when you start to make phone calls home in the beginning... And my family would agree with this 100%. They're frantic. They're, I've got ideas. I'm going to create a whole new business. And I came up with this and, and you're never going to believe what I did. And I'm, I've, I've found my faith and I found God in my cell. You know, they say people find Jesus in prison and then they leave him there when they leave. And I see that a lot. And when you, when you're fresh out of your addiction, when you're, when you're starting to get some, some months of sobriety, your, your body is out of control. It's chemically imbalanced. It's non-homeostatic. And you have to figure out how to put that back together. And it sucks. It's, it's very difficult. But slowly but surely, your body does heal. Your brain starts to come back under control. Your emotions start to become less, you know, tangential and, and your thoughts. Once you regain control of your thoughts, then you can start actually appreciating what your sobriety is. And I didn't, I didn't have a perfect sobriety. I've never had a perfect sobriety. What is a perfect sobriety <laughs> for the sake of this discussion? For the sake of this discussion, a perfect sobriety is... I, I've been clean for 10 years, haven't touched a drop, haven't used a rig, haven't, haven't smoked anything. 10 years, no relapses, first try, I'm good to go. I quit, and that was it. And a lot of people call that white-knuckling it, a lot of people call it cold turkey with success at the end. You can call it whatever you want. Maybe some people can do that. Maybe people lie about it. I don't know. I don't know that I even believe it's possible. But what I do know is that my recovery and my sobriety, I, I had, I had trip ups along the way. 
I made mistakes and I had, I tripped and fell. And it's, it's funny because in those moments you think it's over. I'm back to square one. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm doomed. I messed the whole thing up. I threw, I threw the monopoly board on the floor with all the pieces. Nobody's going to be able to put this back together. You give up at that point. Maybe you got six months of sobriety and you, and you relapse. Okay. I'm back to square one. I'm on day zero. Everybody's going to judge me. I don't want to tell anybody because I think they're going to judge me. And a lot of times they do. And you just give up. And then you go back to using every day. You go back to using every hour. You just give up because it's too overwhelming to think I just gave up that six month period of the hardest battle of my life. And now I got to do it again from the gate. Now, is it really, do you consider it truly going back to square one? You don't, you don't take into account or, or give yourself credit for any of that progress? Or do you mentally take yourself back and like, I've screwed up, it's over, start over? Well, to be honest with you, it's, it's a deception. It's, it's a, um, it's a, it's a defect that, that addicts have that when we mess up, we, we create those realities. We create these sensations of failure and, and doom. And we, we believe that we've, we've gone and done irreparable damage to our sobriety and we give up because of that. It's too overwhelming to think I just fought through those six months and now I screwed up. It's over, but it's not true. It's just like you said. It's just exactly it's, it, like you said. It's one slip up. It's not like you, yeah. You have to remember what you learned. And how far you've come. Yeah. And you look at your... You had six plus years of sobriety in prison. Yep. And to be honest with you... I don't know, I don't know what constitutes sobriety anymore. I used to think that it was just a perfect abstinence from the things that, that harrowed you, the things that caused you grief and the things that destroyed your life. So for me, that sobriety would represent 100% abstinence from heroin. And the farther into to periods of sobriety that I get, <coughs> excuse me, I figure maybe it's not a perfect sobriety if it's just heroin. What if I have, what if I have an addiction to shopping? And I'll, I'll actually be honest here. I do. I love shopping for clothes, shoes, new stuff. I love spending money. And before I went to prison, it was, my bank account was, it just had a hole in the bottom of it. And that hole was American Eagle. It was Buckle. And I'd go spend thousands of dollars on clothes. So maybe my sobriety isn't just heroin. Maybe my sobriety is I have to quit heroin and I have to figure out how to secure my financial situation. So if I go on a shopping spree, did I relapse? So I, I look at all of these things and I try to figure out where is my sobriety end and where does it begin? And to be honest with you, I've kind of given up on, on tracking the quantities. 
some maybe, places. Maybe that's not your best metric. <laughs> I agree. You know, talking about perfection and, and, you know, in the Latter-day Saint culture, we, we often talk about perfection and being, be ye perfect therefore, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. And I think we get this, we get that confused and our definition of perfection is never screwing up, mm. which I think is absolutely wrong. And I think, I think perfection is, um, never giving up. And so you slipped up. So what? You've, you got to take into account all the progress you've made. And as long as you keep trying, even if you fall down every other day, if you keep trying to me, that's perfection. So maybe that's what your sobriety could be called. Sure. Is that oh. You're not giving up. You're here talking about this right now. That's part of your recovery. You're sharing your story. You stumbled, so what? You're still, you're still, you haven't given up. Failure is, would, you, would, would be you just, all right, I'm just going to start using again and screw it. Sure. What's, what's the use? So in my pers- from my perspective... You all, you do have a perfect sobriety. Well, I have a theory, and yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, and I I love that that view. It's very difficult to find people that have similar opinions. <laughs> um, but I have a theory. I'm a runner. I run. Sometimes small distances and sometimes incredible distances. I've done marathons. I've done half marathons. Uh, I've even done five Ks and, and little one mile sprints, you know? And, uh, they all have one thing in common. You run the race with the hope that you don't hurt yourself and the hope that you finish first. And by don't hurt yourself, when you run a marathon, <laughs> Once you get up in the high mileage, that's pretty much your only concern. Am I hurting myself? Is you know, you're paying attention to your body, but you want to finish that race, and the natural human drive is to want to finish it first. But I think that's a deception as well. I want to win. I definitely want to win, but I just want to finish the race, and I'm not. I'm not running a race that I ran it for a couple of miles and then I went and spent the night at a hotel and then I ran a few more miles and then I went and hung out with some friends. I'm running the race and it never ends for me all day, every day. I go to work. I take a shower. I go to my classes. I help people through their sobriety and I am still dealing with my addiction through all of it. I am still running the race and I may trip and fall. It's it's, it's cross country. It's an obstacle course. It's whatever you want to look at it. It's not just straight away on a road. I'm, I'm tripping and I'm falling and I will never stay down. I will always get back up. And that's my sobriety. I don't care if I screw up. I don't care if, if I don't do it perfectly or if I don't do it the way the book says. I will trip and fall and I will always get back up. Write your own book. (laughs) Isn't that what Bob did? Dr. Bob? Yes. He wrote his own book and he ran his own race. 
But that's it. That's my sobriety. And to be honest with you, it's the only sobriety that matters. I don't care. I don't care if it's not ideal. I don't care if it's unorthodox. My sobriety is my sobriety. You get to define all these terms. Yeah. Orthodox, ideal, perfection. Because you're not in a race against anyone else but you. You're trying to be a better marshal than you were yesterday. And all of us should be doing that. And I think if we did that, there'd be much less pain and suffering in the world, but we think we have to race against other people hmm. or compare against them. And that's that's a guaranteed failure every time. Yeah. We're going to pause for a quick timeout. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. One, it's free. Two, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Three, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many others. Four, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And five, it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. It is so stinking easy. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You will not be disappointed. And we're back. I've I've been out of prison now for four and a half months. I was released from prison on May 7th of 2019. I live at a sober living house that has vastly improved my chances of staying clean and of, of succeeding on parole and in my sobriety. It was a miracle that I was able to find them, apply, and be accepted. And I owe a great deal to a lot of people for helping make that happen. And you just recently graduated from the program, correct? Yeah. So yes, talk about that. That's huge. Yeah. I don't know what that entails, but maybe share a little bit about that. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for reminding me. I can't, oh, I get so caught up in these stories. Um, yes. So the place that I live at, Mentor Works, has a program known as IOP. And it's not exclusive to Mentor Works. IOP stands for Intensive Outpatient. And what that defines you as is somebody that is in need of care and attention, but not in a 24 hour inpatient setting. So it's intensive, which means that they pay a lot of attention to you, but it's outpatient, which means that you have some freedom to help influence your treatment. And I completed the program. Two classes a night, almost every night of the week, totaling f about 15 hours of classes every week on top of having a job, paying rent, you know, getting a cell phone, 
meeting the requirements of my parole. I got through it. I've been out for four and a half months, and I graduated IOP. And I did really well with it. I met a therapist who has changed my life forever. I will never be able to express to her how grateful I am for what she's done. Our directors are people that <laughs> sometimes they're a little difficult to approach, but with each of them, I've, I've realized that they care. And that's the funny thing about being an addict. A lot of the world just doesn't care. You're put into a category of forgettables. Would that be a fair statement? The condemned. Condemned? Okay. I believe that... I believe that the vast majority of people are so caught up in their lives, and rightfully so. We get caught up in our own lives. I'm definitely at fault for that. We get so busy and caught up in our lives that unless it directly applies to us, unless it's directly in our path, we usually don't go out of our way to try to investigate or to try to educate or to try to learn. We don't. And with addiction, I think that one of the biggest problems that we have is, is nobody, nobody cares. Everybody knows it's a problem. Everybody hears about it on the news, the opiodemic. They got all these clever names for it. They got billboards on the freeway. That's the awareness campaign, a billboard that you barely pay attention to driving down the freeway at 75 miles an hour. That's going to change America. We're the condemned. Nobody, nobody has any idea what we go through. And when we get out, we have to figure out how to overcome the their condemnation. The stigma. The stigma. People look at it like it's because it's you chose it. Mm-hmm. So they're like, so it's, it's, it's easier to have less sympathy for that when, you know, like someone who got cancer who, oh, well, they're truly a victim. Whereas with substance abuse, it's something people choose. That's, right. that's the perception anyway. Right. So the freedom of choice argument. Yeah. Which, and there's truth to that. I mean, there's, there's some truth to that. Sure. That's a discussion for a completely different interview. Is addiction a disease? I guess, and I saw, I saw a discussion about this the other day that someone, you know, someone was saying, yes, it is. Someone was saying, no, it's not. And it's, it's the whole, it's something that someone chose to start. They didn't know that, you know, they, yeah, you know, I don't know really know where I'm going with this, but mm-hmm. it didn't just happen to them no. is, is the argument. So, well, but yeah, that could be another topic. It, for sure. I am always willing to do more of these interviews and I'm cool talking about is addiction a disease if you ever want to. However, moving forward with this discussion, I graduated IOP and I went and I met with my parole officer, uh, my new parole officer. I was, my, my parole officer got switched on me. They pulled the old okie doke and I was nervous about that, but 
I believe if you make the right decisions and if you do the right things and if you stick to your morals and your values, that the things in your life that need to work out will work themselves out. You know, my therapist gave a perfect example. We don't think about how the squirrel stays alive. We don't think about how the squirrel goes around and, and, and gets nuts or how the nuts are able to be there at the perfect time of the year for them to hoard them. We don't think about any of that stuff. But it happens and it always resolves itself and they propagate. They they move forward. They always, they always just are. And I believe that if you make those right decisions and if your life is in order and you're continuing to stick to your values and your, your core morals, that things will work out. And I went and I met my new parole officer, and he is amazing. And he, he heard that I graduated IOP, and he heard that I have a job, and he heard that I'm, I'm a lead at this Mentor Works, and he heard all of these good things about me, and he had all of the things from my previous parole officer. Good things. And I did that. I did all of those things, and I did them sober, and I did them because I want this, because I won't stay down, because I will always get back up. And he tells me, you know, your parole is 36 months. 36 months after I get out of prison, I have to, I have to produce urine, urinary analysis samples. I have to have requirements of the state mandated. And if I violate them, I can go back to prison in the blink of an eye. For 36 months, I'm supposed to do this. And he tells me, you've been out for four and a half. Give me another seven and I'm going to terminate your parole. Seven more months of being clean, seven more months of making the correct decisions, and he's going to do me a solid one. A parole officer, a corrections officer, the police is going to help me because I'm doing the right thing. And I cannot even begin to tell you how good that felt. That's huge. I earned that. Yeah. I didn't, it wasn't given to me. It wasn't somebody saying, oh, you're struggling. I'm going to throw you a bone. I earned that and I fought for it. Perfect sobriety. Mm -hmm. right. That's huge. I hope that you continue to remind yourself of how awesome that, you know, the, the progress you have made because it's easy to get hung up on the, the slip up. Yeah. Instead of all the magical things you've done. It was, it was not easy and it was not perfect. But I'm assuming worth it. Oh, for sure. If it had been handed to you, like most things, it wouldn't have been appreciated and may have been pissed away. Right. So moving forward, I stay at the house. I still have a couple of months left in order to graduate the mentor work side. There's two entities there, the IOP, intensive outpatient, and then the mentor work side, which is the house itself. And they have their own meetings and they have their own help that they offer. 
And it's a, it's a little bit less intense. <laughs> it doesn't bear the name Intensive Mentor Works. But I'm going to continue to attend those meetings. I'm going to continue to be a lead in leadership at that house. And to be honest with you, I think I've found something. I think I found something that works. And it's, it's service. And this is ultimately the single most important thing that I'll say in this interview. There's tons of good stuff in here. There's lessons, there's, there's stories, there's horror, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in this interview in these three parts. But the only thing that I actually care about saying is that service is everything. I love people. I love meeting people. I love talking to people. I love being around people. I get anxious when I'm alone. I've worked my entire life on improving my ability to speak, to be articulate. Maybe I'm a little verbose, but I love people. I'm gregarious. I'm outgoing. I'm extroverted. And that's a strength I have. It's a strength that I have to be able to interface with people and do it well and make them feel like they're listened to and make them feel like I care because I do. Because you do, because it's not, it's genuine. <clears throat> and when you're an addict, you don't care about people. You don't care about other people's opinions. You don't care about other people's care. You don't care about other people's stuff. You don't care about people. You care about yourself. And your, and your addiction and your, and your dope and your next hit. And when I got out of prison, I wasn't sure what to expect. There's a lot of what ifs. And, you know, what was going to work? Out of all the stuff I learned in prison about myself and about my addiction, what was going to actually work now that I'm free? Now that I have the ability to choose to do whatever I want? Yeah, I've got my parole and I've got my rules and I've got, you know, the laws of man, but I'm free again. I'm not restrained by concrete walls and tons and tons of barbed wire. I'm free. And that's where I came up with the concept of, of a burden. Freedom is a burden. It's not a right. It's not a, it's not granted. It's a burden. We have to choose what to do with that freedom every single day. Do I go to work? Do I sleep in? Do I take care of my kids? Do I, do I just, am I a bad parent? Do I save my money? Do I spend my money? Do I take care of my car or do I just drive it into the ground? Everything that we do are the choices that we make. They are a burden. And if you're irresponsible with them, then the consequences come into play. And now that I have addiction to deal with and on top of my life, my life and my freedom are a burden. And it's heavy. And it's so heavy. And so I didn't know what to expect. How am I going to get... How am I going to be able to bear that weight? How am I going to be able to make correct choices? What is going to work? And I and I, I can honestly say that I don't know how I lucked into figuring it out. It might have started... It might have started when I went and volunteered at the food pantry the first time. 
That was one of your first service yep. opportunities when you got out? Yep. Over at the, the Mentor Works. And I have everything going on. 6 a.m., somebody's pounding on my door. And I know I don't have any meetings. And this guy says, hey, we're headed to the food pantry. Do you want to be a part of this? I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do this. And there's this little old lady there, and she literally would run circles around any grown man. Her work ethic is insane. Her ability to work is just crazy. And I remember thinking, you know, this is something I did as a kid, as a Boy Scout. We went and did service projects. The obligatory service project? The obligatory, yes. <clears throat> and that's that's the problem. You can't require service. You can't make it mandatory or it's not authentic. Your ability to choose with that burden of freedom to go help somebody, help others, or to just help people directly. I remember I was packing these bags of potatoes and it hit me. These bags of potatoes are going to go to people that need to feed their families. These bags of potatoes are going to go save lives. And yeah, it's a potato. But you know what? I've been homeless. I've been starving for days. And if I had a potato, <laughs> I would have been just fine. I would have felt great. But nobody gave me a potato. And I'm packing these bags of potatoes and I'm thinking, these are going to people that are going to appreciate them. And I am helping make that happen. And so I went the next week. And I felt, I felt great about it then too. And then I started getting into leadership roles at my house. How you doing, man? You know, my door's always open. If you need to come talk, if you're struggling, I may not have any advice for you. I may not have any answers, but I'll listen. And then I started driving people to and from the clinic. And then I started volunteering up in Salt Lake City. And I started doing all of these projects, pulling weeds, building things, cleaning garbage, just little things. Sometimes it's an hour and sometimes it's half the day. And it's, it's not the work that I care about. It's the outcome. It's the product. And the product is my love and care produces an effect in somebody else's life that's uplifting. And I figured it out. I figured out that for me, it's enough. For me, when I'm struggling and when I'm having a hard time, I go, I go spend time around people. I ask them how they're doing. I ask them how's their job. And it helps me so much. And I do it every day. I ride the train up to see people. I'm on the train for hours a week, hours and hours and hours. And I make it a point to meet people because people want to talk. And if they don't want to talk, cool. They can sit on the train. I'll move on. But the people that want to talk, you find out their name, you find out where they're from, and then you say, you know what? I'm human, you're human, how are you doing? And, me and mean it, and want an answer. And actually want to hear the answer. Not just a courtesy. Service is, as ironic as it sounds, kind of a selfish motivation. You do it because <laughs> it's going to make you feel awesome. It's a win-win, not a win-lose. Self-serving service. Yeah, because it is. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna feel good when I do this, so I'm gonna go do this. Which is kind of weird, but that's how it is. 
I've found it, my, my groove, and I've found what works for me. I don't know if my future is going to be any more perfect than it is right now, or imperfect. I don't really care, to be honest with you. Again, it just how you define perfection. Right. You always have to, you, <laughs> you get to define what that is, not someone else. My perfection is the pursuit. My perfection is the imperfections. It's the asymmetrical. It's the human element. It's the ability to, to hurt and to make mistakes and, and to struggle and, and to be, you know, to owe money or to, to fall down or to, you know, maybe somebody wrecks and hits your car. That sucks. It all sucks really bad and it hurts. And at the time it seems like the end of the world, but you know what? Every single time we rise, if we choose to rise, and that's me, that's, that's this, that's, that's my whole story. I rise every time and I will continue to do so. I will never give up and I will never stay down. That's called winning. I may not finish first, but I'm going to win. Who defines what's first? Again, it goes back to the definition. Hmm. If you're in a race against Marshall and you get up today and you get up tomorrow, well, you just beat Marshall, so you win. Hmm. That's first. That's coming in first. I hope nobody races against Marshall. I want everybody to race with Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) So there it is. There it is. There's well, the, that's awesome. There's the big story. There's part three. Part three. Our fans can can mellow out now because we've you've given it to them. Any uh, any uh, as we wrap this up, assuming we're wrapping this up. For now. final for now, tell the next one about <laughs> whatever other topic we decide to chat about. If no one, if they heard nothing else, you want them to hear what? Just help everybody out, man. You see, you just see people and just realize that they, they're struggling too. I went to prison. I robbed banks. I struggle with heroin addiction. I owe a little bit of money. But you know what? You've got problems too. And your problems are bigger than my problems because they're yours. And realizing that and just saying, you know what? I'm going to take my problems and I'm going to still say, I'll help you. Just help everybody. We're all here together. We're floating around in this world, this ship. And we're all humans and we've all got problems and we're all just trying to find our way. And I think we should always help each other. And that is the key to my happiness. That's what works for me. And I am so happy. Because you have, it's your perspective because one could look at your situation and go, that must really suck. <laughs> having to recover from that lifestyle. Yeah. I re- but I re- you said it's your, ha- I mean, it's, 
is happiness for you because you're seeing the progress. We have a saying in my house. We've created a little hashtag. It's B-A-F-T-T-F, be a friend of the friendless. (laughs) And I try to tell my kids that every day. Find someone. Pray for the opportunity to find someone that you can help because you won't always see it. You won't see it if you're not really looking for it unless somebody bumps right into you literally falls down at your feet. But look for opportunities. Everybody has a story. Everybody's hurting in some way. I don't care how many zeros you have on the end of your problems or in your bank account. Everybody has something that even just listening to them, like you say, just listening. It's a lost art because we're so busy with our devices and our our our, our attention is just being pulled in 900 different directions every five minutes. Yeah, and, and you know what? Get off Facebook. <laughs> Get off Facebook. Stop reposting quotes that say, give somebody a smile, it may change their day, and go out and actually give somebody a smile. Do it, yeah. Or if you're on Facebook, produce your own content and do some good in the world. <laughs> don't just consume everyone else's. Produce your own. Don't consume... Everyone else's crap. Go produce your own crap. Sweet. I guess. This you know. turned into a political discussion now. Totally. <laughs> I just, I love everybody. I love everybody in this world. And I struggle with some of the people here. And some of the people and I may not get along. But I love everybody here. Because we're all trying to figure this this place out. We're all trying to figure out how to best spend our hundred years here. And... We may never figure it out. We may go to the coffin and, and realize, you know what? I didn't figure out, like, all of it. But at least I tried. Yeah, but if in that pursuit, you lived your life believing that there was something greater or something bigger, and you tried to make the world better for other people and for yourself, there is no downside if at the end it's all a lie. Sure. That's how I look at it. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. You're welcome. That was awesome. Again, I appreciate you your willingness to to share this. That uh, that's quite a story. It's a fascinating story on so many levels. Yeah, you're welcome. And I want to say thanks to everybody who listened. I don't know who all of you people are. I know some of you, but I hope this helps. And I love you. Sweet. It's a perfect way to end it, man. Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. 